Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Kendall Seesmeyer. She's a journalist and co-host of That, That, Don't Kill Me, which is a podcast which is also about disability. And she is a transplant recipient, so she's going to tell us all about her journey. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Total pleasure. to be here. Yes, it's wonderful to speak to you. We're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, which is (laughs) for better... (laughs) Yeah, what an interesting time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's particularly interesting because you're one of the people who started social isolating a a little bit sooner than others, which I think was probably a smart move on your part. And we've been chatting about that before we uh, decided to start our interview, but I'm sure we'll get into some of that, particularly with protection for yourself because of immunosuppressants that you have to stay on. But why don't we start at the very beginning for you? Yes. Can you tell us when and how you first realized something was going on and what part of your body this was affecting and then what steps you've since taken to take control over your health? Sure. So um, long story. (laughs) I love that story. It's a fascinating story. I will cut it down. (laughs) You do what you want to do, girl. Snatch it up. (laughs) Make it (laughs) Uh, tight 10. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, we're only here for the tight 10. <laughs> um, so I was born with, well, debatable, born with, they don't necessarily know if it's congenital or not, but I use born with colloquially because uh, I was diagnosed with a pediatric liver disease when I was eight weeks old. Mm-hmm. And um, that's typically when the, the disease that I was diagnosed with, biliary atresia, is diagnosed around that old and um, had my first surgery at that age as well in the hopes of buying time at the time they were truly trying not to do any transplants on babies. Um, I was born in 92. So, um, you know, I think everything has progressed so much and now they definitely do transplants on babies, but that's so interesting because also those organs are going to grow over time too. Yeah, well, I mean, babies get like portions, and so do kids in general. Interesting. Um, livers are an or- a very, very big organ in your body, but mm. even um, as an eleven-year-old, which is when I ended up giving getting two liver transplants, I got a portion of of mm. a liver of an adult liver. Yeah. Um, yeah, cause livers grow back and they grow back appropriately to your body size, and it's sort of like cutting off a lizard's tail. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's fascinating. I did not know that about livers. Yeah, it's a really interesting. Yeah, so whereas like lungs or a heart, you have to have a like a donor that's the appropriate size. Um, Mm -hmm. Livers, that's not necessary. So Mm -hmm. interesting. Very. Um, And so yeah, I uh, had that surgery when I was two months old. Had another surgery when I was four years old um, from another kind of complication from that original surgery, and then. Um, had two liver transplants when I was 11. Uh, And they were pretty much back to back five weeks apart. The first was a living donor from my dad. The second was from a deceased donor. Like I said, five weeks later, um, I got an aneurysm of the major artery that feeds into the liver. And that necessitated the second transplant. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, my, my medical history is crazy. It's so long. And, That's what we're here um, for. <laughs> I, would say that, I would say there's been like a lot of ups and downs, but mm. um, I, I don't, I, I haven't ever had a time in my life where I didn't really have to think about my health. Like that was always a thing. Um, even when I was very little, I knew that there was, 
you know, something that was different about me than my brother, than other kids I knew. I had scars on my stomach. That was a very clear, visible indicator um, as if if the doctor's appointments were not enough. So um, yeah, I mean, I think I always, I always knew and I always did, you know, I obviously when I was little, I did whatever my parents told me to do or did. Um, And then I think as I've gotten older, taken on more of that responsibility for myself. And that looks like a lot of different things. Um, I would, you know, now I'm, I'm coming up on 16 years post-transplant, which is quite something. Um, And I think this liver likes me. I think I like it. So I think we're like, (laughs) hopefully going to stay together for a while. And this was a full liver transplant. This one, when you had the one right after your dad's donation. They were were both like, partial donations or partial okay. um, sections of, because I was 11, the donor liver was a 24-year-old man. Hmm. So that wouldn't have fit in my 11-year-old body. Sure. Um, I also have um, a very weird thing where my abdominal organs are flipped. It's called abdominal situs inversus. And it's actually uh, something that they can tell on um, a, an advanced ultrasound when wow. before you're born. So, wow. so you you were born and your parents knew. Uh, yeah, they knew that there was like a wide variety of of conditions that it could correlate to. Mm. Um, there's also another kind of variation of that where your heart is on the other side, is on the incorrect mm-hmm. side. Um, my heart's on the correct side, but it's my abdominal organs that are flipped. And so, um, that, does that affect the surgeries? And you know, it affects all rates? of it because there's just not that. There's just it's all like the anatomy is just all a little bit different. Yeah. So it affects, I mean, and they're not like flipped like up and down. It's like left and right flip. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lateral liver, flip. Yeah. My liver is on my left side. Your liver is on your right side. Right. My spleen's on my right side. Your spleen's on your left side. Most right. people don't even know whether these organs are in their Yes, body. that's also true. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> actually, when I was in the hospital having my transplants, et cetera, et cetera, kind of all throughout my kind of growing up when I was in the hospital and there would be like new residents, they would come in and, you know, like they wake you up and they start touching your stomach and stuff. And they would always get this like really nervous look on their face. And, <laughs> Cause they couldn't, because I, 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 cause they were looking on the wrong side. Yeah. And to me, I was always like, mm, should have read the chart, dude. <laughs> you know, like, so I, true. They, would, they would like run out of the room and then come yeah. back and they'd be like, mm, okay. <laughs> Didn't yeah. want to alarm you, but. <laughs> like, oh, got it. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not my fault, bro. Like, yeah. Doesn't that go to show that people, you know, that these practitioners need to read the chart before they go in yeah. the room and start I mean, palpating yes. a patient? There's plenty of like, I mean, there's plenty of lessons that I've taught many a fellow or residents. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, that has, I mean, that in and of itself, that, that small action has so much to do with the way in which you administer your bedside care, you know, like that your bedside manner could be so affected by not knowing all the information you need to know before you go in to see a patient and why not make it easier for everyone and not waste time by just glancing over the chart. No big deal. That's why it's there. Yeah. Very interesting. For me, it's like a little bit of hazing. I just Mm. do to kind of like mess them up a little yeah. bit <laughs> to rib um, them a little. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially a lot of doctors come in like with like a lot of ego and mm. it's, you know, I'm like a teenager at this point and just kind of like, okay, <laughs> I <laughs> more than you do, bro. <laughs> like, which, which is actually probably true. <laughs> no, I, oh, it's absolutely true. Given your experiences, you weren't like one of those teenagers who thinks that they're invincible and, and knows everything you no. legitimately knew more about yourself. No, I, Yes, I legitimately knew more about my health care than any doctor that I would meet. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. So you've now had how many total transplants and surgeries? I've had two transplants and I've had one, two, I guess if you count the transplants, one, two, three, four, five, six um, major um, liver surgeries. Right. Yeah. yeah, you say major liver surgeries. What else has happened? Oh, I mean, I don't know. People qualify things as surgeries that I just don't qualify as surgery. Mm. Um, 
you know, I used to have a, a tube in my liver that I got changed out every six weeks under general anesthesia for 11 years. Mm. And that I would not qualify as a surgery. It's a procedure. Mm. Um, and but it's still I, invasive now. Sure, it's invasive, but it's not um, It's not like a big, massive inc- incision, I guess. Or okay. like, you know, I guess technically your like wisdom teeth extraction is a surgery. Yeah, I count that. I yeah. So I don't know. Then maybe. What about, so what? What is this about this tube that was in your your liver? So it was a surgical complication for my second transplant, where uh, my bile ducts basically kind of narrowed and collapsed, creating um, kind of just a, a stricture, an impediment for bile to flow throughout your liver. And when that happens, you form what they call like liver stones, which are different than kidney stones. You can't like, you know, shoot them out with a gun in the bathtub. Uh, <laughs> you have to um, like, like fish them out with some kind of like interventional radiology procedure. Wow. Um, okay. It's like very like your, your, your liver has um, bile ducts and that carries bile. Bile is the, the thing that your liver produces to absorb um, nutrients and to digest your food. And, um, what happens is like your bile ducts basically look like a tipped over tree and it has all these, they have all these little branches and, um, the main kind of trunk of my bile duct, uh, in my liver of my bile ducts, my liver basically had this big collapse. So there was this like slowing of bile that couldn't move through and then it would get stuck. And because your liver is attached to your gut, your colon, there's a lot of bacteria and it's a dirty tract. So um, bacteria would then brew and kind of breed into the liver. And then I would get this liver infection really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that liver infection would turn into a blood infection, which is also known as sepsis. And that would happen in a matter of like four to five hours. So wow. from nothing to like sepsis very, very quickly. And that could happen at any time. And so I had a tube kind of like a stent in your heart, but Mm. in livers, you can't place a permanent stent um, because bile is a sticky substance Mm. and bile will clog up the tube that's keeping your bile duct open, hence making the tube like totally insufficient for what it's trying to do, which is to keep everything open. Mm. And so uh, I would have to get the tube changed out and them to place a new tube. So it came out of my body and I would, you know, flush it with, I had it capped for the most part until, until like the night I would have to hook it up to a bag and flush it with like this basically human Drano solution to try to keep (laughs) it all open. Right. Uh, And, um, yeah, I mean, it was a lot to deal with for sure. And I did that. How old were you when this was happening? 11. From 11 to 20. Three, twenty-two, twenty-three. I mean, that's a lot yeah. to be taking on in terms of daily maintenance and yes, pretty catastrophic potential consequences yes. at such and a I young age. I would get like a couple of other infections um, a year, even with changing it out every six weeks. Mm. Um, if I went beyond six weeks, the tube would get clogged and then I would have an infection. But sometimes even six weeks was too long of a time and I would get these liver infections. And so that kind of progressively I would say got worse and um and so that was something that eventually I was going to need a third transplant if they couldn't surgically fix it they tried to surgically fix it when I was like basically I think like the summer before my eighth grade year so a couple of years into this whole charade Mm -hmm. and it was a 13-hour surgery and it was unsuccessful about four months later and so um, at that point, they were like, you're going to have to live with this tube and get, have these procedures um, every six weeks until your body no longer tolerates it. And then you're going to need a third transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, fast forward all of these years and um, I was having a lot of problems and I was interning. I wanted to go do an internship in New York City. I was a junior in college and I was about to leave like the next day for my internship in New York. And I was just having so many problems. Like the Mm -hmm. tube just kept on getting clogged. And then I, you know, had a procedure and then the next day got clogged again. And so they were just thinking that potentially this like solution wasn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, like, you know, they weren't sure how, if this was kind of the end of the road, if I was going to need to be listed again, 
all of those things. And so I just said, okay, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to just, just tell me which hospital to go to when everything falls apart. Wow. That's very this. brave. I mean, there are so many people yeah. who, who live with the consequences of chronic illness who sort of their worlds become smaller. And it sounds like your reaction was to go, I'm going to go wherever I can. I'm going to live my life. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think I'd already been away from co- for college. Mm-hmm. I went to college in DC. I am from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd already done, I've had already experienced the late in the night, you know, issue where I had to either go to the ER at Georgetown where I went to school or fly home. And like my parents pick me up from the airport and we go straight to the ER. Right. I'd already so hospitals that. didn't freak you out. You were just sort of like, if I end up yeah. at one, I end up at one. Yeah. And tell me who I should call because right. it's good to know someone. Yes. So I, I go to New York. I meet with the doctor team at Columbia they say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you've had this problem for five years. That's heroic. And I'm like, no, no, sir. I've had this <laughs> issue for 10 years. And they said, oh, well, that's insane. Like, <laughs> so it went from heroism to insanity. Great, great. No, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Don't worry. I live in this body and I'm, I'm aware. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so they said, well, we have this really amazing surgeon and, you know, like, I hate to meddle, but like, maybe you should get some scans and see what he thinks. Because mm-hmm. I told him, you know, they tried to do surgery and it didn't work. Right. And he's like, well, you know, like, not everyone's equal. Yeah. So, and I mean, being in New York City, I mean, one of the places with best hospitals sure. in the world. Yeah. So right. your likelihood of throwing a stone and hitting an excellent specialist is higher. Probably. It's higher. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I did that. I got the scans and I actually ended up making it through my whole internship with no problems, which was great. Wow. And um, my parents, when they came out to pick me up, we went and met with the doctor and uh, the surgeon. And he said, I think I can fix your problem. Wow. Um, which was just not words I ever expected mm-hmm. to hear. Yeah, of course. After, I mean, nearly, well, a decade plus yeah, living with exactly. this issue, at a yeah. certain point, you sort of you succumb to it, don't you? So that's yes, especially after the surgery that was, you know, supposed to fix it didn't work. Right. I think that was kind of like, okay, well, I guess it can't be fixed. Um, so anyway, long story short, a year later I made the decision to have the surgery after I graduated from college. Um, I moved out to New York with my parents for a period of time and had the surgery and haven't had a problem since. That's incredible. So this really fixed the actual ducts so that yeah. they- process the bile. Yeah. They like basically splayed my liver open and fixed it all. I mean, that's got to be a very time intensive and labor intensive surgery, I imagine too. It was less time intensive than my other surgeries prior. Um, I think it was around like, you know, six hours versus a transplant's like 13. Right. So at any point along this journey was, did the idea of mortality hit you that like, This could be affecting my life expectancy. You know, who knows what could happen at at the the turn of a dime, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think life expectancy, mortality, all those things, like I, you know, when I had an aneurysm of Mm. the hepatic artery, that was a um, 98% mortality rate. It happens in in 0.1% of transplant, post-transplant patients. And or like oh, boy. or something. It's like ridiculously rare and it's ridiculously deadly. Yeah. And so I think um, that was probably the time where it was like, oh, that's very clear that this could not go. And, and I was, I was, that happened. You were I was 11. 11. Yeah. And yeah. I was also unconscious. <laughs> like, right, I, was okay. not, I had no idea what was happening. Um, and I just, you know, woke up from an induced coma a couple weeks later and was like, oh, what happened to me? Okay. Wow. Got it. I need a third, I need a second transplant. Oh, that sucks. Cause I just did this thing. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you'd been asleep for two weeks and probably your parents had been fretting beyond belief. I can't yes. even imagine what they must've gone through. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I think for many years I didn't have a whole clear, very clear picture about what that whole period was like. Yeah. And I, I, and then I would say that the other time was when I found this situation with this surgical complication where I actually did get really pretty aggressive sepsis and, Mm -hmm. uh, was, you know, had a 50 over 20 blood pressure in the ICU. 
And they were like taking me in to kind of immediately try to stabilize me. And that was the time where I was very aware of what was happening. And I very much felt like, oh, I think I'm dying. You know, like very much adult. This was in your 20s. No, this was this was when I had they'd found this surgical complication for my second transplant, which was like, oh, right. When you were still a kid. Yeah. Right. So this is like at a very young age facing yeah, yeah. this idea yeah. of like, am I going to wake up from this surgery? Yes. Yes. Oh. And so I think, um, I think like to me, I think my whole life has always felt like a little bit unsure and a little bit unclear. And I just honestly, like, I don't think about it that much. Like I don't think about how long I have or what my mortality rate looks like or what my life expectancy is. Like, I really don't focus on that at all. I just focus on the fact that like, I think I kind of came out into this world basically thinking that I had not enough time and um, being kind of like quite the overcompensator for that reason. And I think that it has kind of uh, instilled a boldness within me that um, I think when you have your, you know, your biggest fear attached to you at all times, and, and from in my case, like, you know, I had this literal kind of tube inside of me at all times, and that was the biggest fear I had for like my entire adolescence and growing up. I think that that makes you go, okay, well, I honestly, like all these other little things, like mm, this test or this boy or this thing I want to achieve or accomplish like it all just feels so much less like it just makes you less afraid. Well, less important or less stressful yeah just yeah. I think it just puts it in perspective like if yeah. I if the what's the worst thing could happen I know what the worst thing that could happen is and yeah. it could happen at any moment and I have yeah. no control over it and the worst thing that could happen is not that I fall flat on my face and embarrass myself in front of all of these people or by doing this thing that I really want to do. Yeah. And I really think that in a lot of ways, that was a huge advantage to me. Yes, absolutely. Well, to be so young and, and so successful in what you've done as well. I mean, that's rare and very exciting too. I, I just think it's so exceptional, you know, that you've been through all of this and, and sure. you're still here kicking. I mean, it's, did you have mental health support along the way to sort of guide you through that? Or was that sort of innate with you as well? Um, I would say no. Um, I mean, not that I, I honestly don't think that, I think everyone copes with these things differently. And for me, I think I just was kind of the like, put your head down and gut through it kind of person, Sure. which I don't think, you know, I think now I, you know, I started therapy for the first time in my life, like six months ago. Oh my like, God. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing to me. Yeah. Wow. I, don't, I don't necessarily think that that's like, I'm not saying like, oh, that's a good thing. I'm mm. just, I just think like, I wasn't a, I don't think I would have, I, I, I wasn't able to, I think, deal with it and also like, like deal with it on a daily basis and also like talk about it and like look at it and confront my pain and like, you know, all of those things at Mm. the same time. Yeah. I think that for me, you prioritized, I just didn't want it to interrupt my life any more than it absolutely had to. Yep. Um, and I just wanted it to get, to get back to like, you know, gunning for it. And honestly, Mm. I, I think that for some, it's a, it's a personality thing. It's like what you're, kind of born with. And I think for me, that was like the way I saw it had to be. And like, like your default is ambition or drive. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's plenty of ways that that can be a bad thing too, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can hide, everyone can hide in something like you can hide in addiction. Other people hide in accomplishment. Like Mm -hmm. that's me, (laughs) you know, I think. I don't know. You're being pretty honest about that right now. So well, but I, but I also think that that's, um, I think now looking, I think now I have the space mm. and the health to go back and look at some of those things and say, yes, this still impacts me. Mm. Yes, this like is still a difficult situation. You know, it's very difficult for me to feel like I have a fever because a fever is what kind of would trigger me needing to be in the ER uh, potentially with sepsis, right? right? So 
to feel like I have a fever or a low level thing. Like I can sense it really quickly in my body and I'm very well trained to be hyper aware and vigilant about that. Hyper responsive too. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So that I think is a, you know, when is that necessary? When is that not necessary? And then letting yourself believe that you're okay and or are you like living with a constant low level state of anxiety too? Yeah. Or, and then like, do you, then if I go, oh, well, I think I'm okay now, but then I go, well, what if I'm not okay? <laughs> like mm-hmm. yeah. how, you know, this is like, where the therapy will help. I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, it's like, you don't want to be stupid and you don't mm. want to be ignoring something that is real. But I think, you know, there are psychosomatic things that can come into to play as well. Sure. So it's not something that it's like, oh, I think I think I couldn't deal with the mental aspect of it when I was in it because I was just like triaging the immediate problem. You had to just live. You had to survive. Yeah, that was the number yeah. one priority. And in a lot of ways, like, you know, I never got my tonsils out, because, even though they're massive, because there was just always way too many other problems to take care right. of, you know? So I think in, in that sense, it's it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy. Like you got to like get to the, you got to take care of the most important thing first. And that's really intense for a really long time. You might not get to the other things. But it also sounds like grace under pressure to me. And I think to a lot of other people listening, (laughs) because a lot of people's Uh default is not to get it done. You know, a lot of people it's fight or flight. And it sounds like rather than just going into fight or flight, you go into like solution-based you know, which is probably why you're also such a good journalist. <laughs> well, I think I'm, I, I think it's almost something where I was like raised in this situation. And so I, it's almost that normalcy feels really hard and weird and difficult for me. Mm. And I'm actually really, I think that's a lot of the reason that I'm attracted to a career in kind of journalism or anything that's a little bit um, urgent or stressful because I am like, I'm, that's my like good, I'm really good at operating in that zone. Yes, absolutely. It's you're not as good at sitting still and waiting for something to happen. You're much better at taking action. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that your dad was one of your first donors. Yeah. Um, And it sounds like your parents have been very involved in your health journey as well. And I'm wondering whether they acted as advocates for you and whether that was something that was obvious to you and how that's affected your relationship with them. (laughs) (laughs) A big question. I've got lots of big questions, girl. (laughs) Give me Um, your, give me your tight 10 though. (laughs) Um, Yes, my parents were have always been incredibly involved mm. in my health. Um, I think, you know, we've been through a lot, the three of us. I have a brother, too. Mm. Um, so he's an older brother, too. And uh, But I would say that, like, for a lot of it, obviously, it was, like, me and my parents. And I think we've been through a lot together, our whole mm. family, for sure. And, um, yeah, I think they were always incredible advocates and especially my mom is like totally a warrior. Mm -hmm. Um, like don't cross mama bear kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, I think they taught me in a lot of ways how to fight for myself Mm -hmm. in, in those contexts, like growing up. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think now I think the interesting dynamic is like what happens when you kind of like grow up and you grow independent and all of those things. And I think in a lot of ways, it's just been a really natural process of like growing up and like me taking on more responsibility for my own health as I get older. And as well, you only know what you know. It's not like you can compare it to any other experience. Sure. Yeah. And I think I probably have a closer relationship with my parents than other people my age do maybe, or a different kind of relationship because of the nature of what my life has looked like. Mm-hmm. But I, I think now it really does feel like, um, it really does feel like, you know, I, I really kind of take care of a lot of my medical, all my medical stuff and mostly by my, I mean, pretty much always by myself. Yeah. So you've been um, able to grow into independence through this sure, process. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's wonderful that this experience has made you guys closer because there's a lot of stress involved in watching your child suffer. And, sure. yeah. um, you know, the fact that they've been able to cultivate a close relationship with you and seemingly not stress you out about 
the mortality from early on. You know, that seems like it was more well, your I don't think not theirs. Yeah. I don't think I mean my mom's definitely a warrior. <laughs> like how could you not be, I guess? A warrior um, and a warrior. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. Um but uh but you know I think they never kind of I, I don't think that they were ever like too cautious with me or made right. me feel like I was like, they were really supportive of basically whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I ran cross country, not even a year after my liver transplants. <laughs> and uh, I was last in almost every single race. <laughs> like, but the point is that you yeah, were doing it. Dead last, like basically dead last. <laughs> and there were like, a couple of other girls from other teams who were also slow. Mm. Uh, but I was always like, well, you didn't have a transplant, so I don't know what your excuse is. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I think that's my, fair enough. <laughs> my dad would like come and like run the, you know, you know, like most of the race with me alongside me. You know, I think they never said, no, you can't do that. Mm. Um, you know, maybe if I was a guy and I was trying to play football, they'd be like, okay, maybe another sport. A little but, rough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think they were always really supportive um, and they mostly, yeah, they mostly mm. just let me be as kind of bold as I wanted to be. Yes, absolutely. So what's a typical day looking like for you now? Are you finding that you have to be aware of your surroundings and managing symptoms or managing potential triggers, especially because you're on immunosuppressants as well? Um, Not typically. I mean, the corona time is a little weird. It's a strange times for us all. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm definitely socially uh, isolating, distancing, all of those things right now. Mm. But in a normal context, I would say um, no. Uh, there's really You're nothing. just like everyone else. Yeah. I mean, I take a decent amount of meds in the morning and at night and that kind of thing. And I also don't drink mm. um, because I've had two liver transplants and yep. alcohol <laughs> and livers are, yep. don't really mix. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, you know, I might have like a glass of some, like not even a glass of something at some point, mm. but it's like very rare. I never buy alcohol because I don't drink at all. Like sometimes if like my friends have wine, I might have like a little bit or give them what like, and then give it to them. You know, that just sounds sensible. I do plenty of like, you know, I'll have a couple of sips because I like the taste and then I'll give it to you, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But I don't drink really. Um, And so I would say that that's like the biggest kind of difference but there are also so many people, so many adults who don't drink. It's not, I, I find that like socially speaking, it's not an odd thing to say, ah, I don't drink. Like no one really judges you for it anymore. Oh, Do you I get judged? Do you get peer I pressured? I don't know if that's really true. Oh, um, interesting. Maybe it happens in your thirties. <laughs> yeah, I think like as you get older, it definitely mm. gets better. Um, yeah. Cause you know, more people realize they have problems. Right. <laughs> I think I mean, college was really intense mm. uh, with the drinking situation. That's fair enough. Um, I think, you know, post-grad a little bit. And then I think it's gotten way, way better. Now it doesn't seem like a huge deal. But I still definitely get the like, oh, you you don't you don't drink? Like, <laughs> uh, and it's almost like, <laughs> I talk about this a lot, actually. It's almost like you're immediately, when you don't drink, it makes people self-conscious of their own relationship with alcohol. Mm. And, and, and then they immediately get uncomfortable. Like, Oh, um, ah, oh, ah, oh, do, yeah. do you want, should I, should I not drink? Like, I don't care what you drink. Like, <laughs> like maybe you need to go to therapy and work that out. Or not drink. Like they get yeah. so uncomfortable. Yeah. And I interesting. noticed that the most is that they, it immediately makes them. It says more about other people. Yeah, and it makes them reflect on their own relationship with it. Mm, that's very interesting. Well, speaking about reflecting on relationships, I'm also wondering, because sure. you've mentioned this this uh, physician who came in and didn't read your chart and was looking for your liver and couldn't find it. Sure, sure, sure. This is a great example of someone who didn't get it, right? But yeah. I'm wondering if you've been in situations where you've been confronted and had to justify to people what was going on with you, whether it was justifying why you weren't drinking or, you know, having to justify to perhaps a clinician who didn't really understand the whole picture. Have sure. you had experiences like that where you've had to, yeah, I mean, why had, it was invisible? I've been, I've been pretty 
lucky in that mm. front in general. Um, I think people have mostly believed me. Yeah. Um, I think, yes, there's always been that kind of weird burden of knowing that your life is really different than everyone else's life around you mm. and, and having them not know. Uh, and I'm not going to bring it up unless it's like absolutely necessary Mm. And, uh, you know, or if it comes up, it comes up. Like, I don't really care to bring it up. Like, it's not a big deal to me. But also, I'm not going to just be like, hi, my name is Kendall. I've had two liver transplants. Oh, you, you don't know? introduce yourself that way? No, I don't. I really don't. Um, <laughs> not to, at least. Uh, and um, and so, yeah, I think in, in that way, it's it's mostly just... Uh, and, and I, I got a lot, I, there's privilege in that too, right? Like, well, that I, was the next thing I was going to ask you about yeah, was privilege, can, you know, I can like slide through and, and have no one think Question that you. there's anything yeah, wrong. Um, and I think, you know, I've had like small instances with doctors, like people not, um, giving me, you know, certain antibiotics for a sinus infection because they don't like think I'm sick enough or, you know, whatever. And, but mostly, honestly, like I, once you get your doctors and once you like find the right people, then it's so much easier because they just have a relationship with you. You're kind of like a frequent flyer. It's it's just I like that right? frequent flyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I had one OBGYN who read my chart. This was in New York, and I was like looking for new doctors, and she uh, was looking through my chart, and she came in and she said, "Wow." you look so good. And I was like, excuse me? Oh God. Like, well, I just read your chart and I just expected you to look way worse. Why would you say <laughs> that? That's just rude. <laughs> you just look so healthy. Oh God. And, and like amazing. After all you've been through. You're glowing. <laughs> I know. I just, I thought it was so weird and so deeply uncomfortable and I never went back. Yeah. Good on so, you. So, uh, I just thought it was so inappropriate for her to be commenting on my physical appearance. That's entirely inappropriate. Yeah. yeah she's there yeah. for one reason and it is not your whole appearance. Like, I'm sh- I should look worse to you? Yeah, like, yeah. you to- I don't know. Like, do you, I'm confused. Well, that's <laughs> also, it's like a preconceived judgment yes. on someone, isn't sure. it? You know? Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that kind of thing. But mostly I've, I've been pretty lucky. Like people typically, I think with the things that I deal with, because I think, organ transplant like liver like problem and like big organ problems I think mm. people are pretty much like oh oh, oh okay right. like you know we're gonna that's treat her with kids gloves yeah that's a lot yeah, yeah. well the, and you know I think getting accommodations in college I had to go up to every professor at the beginning of the semester and tell mm. them what my deal was and I would say that most people minus like a couple really like believed me and really mm. kind of like were decided that they wanted to be on my side. Now, I think I uh, implemented a few tactics in order to make sure that happened Mm. because, you know, I learned how to be good at this, Um, but, and to get what I need, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think most, mostly I've been pretty lucky that people have taken it seriously. Can you see any of that experience having been different if you presented differently? Like perhaps if you were a woman of color, do you think you struggled more? Absolutely. I mean, all of the factors, right? Like if, I mean, and I think also I got a lot of really good care because my parents are really smart and really. And educated. um, So they have really, really educated. And, you know, I've always had health insurance and I've always had good health insurance. Um, You know, my dad didn't change jobs like when I was younger because we had really good health insurance and he, you know, this was before pre-existing conditions and that kind of thing. And, um, and, and so like he could have been denied coverage based on me, you know, had that been a thing where he changed insurance companies. So right. definitely change, you know, like we definitely, they definitely, my parents definitely made decisions in order to make sure that that was the case. Um, and they were able to make those decisions. Hmm. So I had a lot of legs up, a hundred percent, a lot of legs up. Right. Yeah. And but it's important to also acknowledge that, isn't it? Because that's oh, how absolutely. we begin to fill the gaps for people who need lifting up in those situations too. Yeah. And they took my family really seriously. They mm. always took my, because my parents were like, 
well, we're going to write down every single thing you say. We're going to know exactly what you're talking about. And we're going to ask you hard questions. And they sometimes didn't like that, but at least they respected it. Mm, Absolutely. That's very good advice for caregivers, I think, too. Mm -hmm. So has your experience turned into advocacy on a larger scale? Can you walk us through any of the work that you've been doing as an advocate to raise awareness? Sure. I mean, I think like, you know, when I was younger, I uh, was interested in being an advocate for other kinds of causes. And so I started a nonprofit alongside when I was kind of undergoing two liver transplants to help um, inspire and empower young people to help provide basic human needs for children living in sub-Saharan Africa. And that was like during the height of the AIDS epidemic. It was something that I saw on TV that I was really inspired to do. And that gave me a lot of purpose that I was like fighting for something that was much bigger than myself and that I had a mm. positive reason to kind of keep fighting and stay alive. And tell us was, the name of that organization too. It's so called can Kids Caring for Kids. Kids With the Caring number four. And it's all K's. Yeah. Yeah. And now, well, it's caring is with a C. Yeah, caring is with a C. It's caring for kids. Yes. Thank you. And um, it's now actually run by a larger organization as its um, kids branch, which is really nice because I don't have to run the day-to-day operations and they kind of are still, it's still in use and still helpful to people, which is kind of, you know, after 12 years of running it, that was just really my hope that it could just be helpful in some way to someone. Um, and, Absolutely. And uh, so I'm really happy with that. But it's not as it was a huge part of my life growing up. It's not as much a part of my life anymore. I would say that, you know, a lot of my work uh, aligns with advocacy and activism. Um, I now well, work. Yeah, you were a huge part in breaking a very big story that's influencing not only the news, but also like everyone's social media feed right now. So you should oh, talk about that. Wait, too. wait, what, what, what are talking, you talking about? I'm talking about the whole tie in with Kim K. Oh, that one. Yeah, reform. okay. That yeah, one. Sure. Oh, which one? There was there are a few. Tell us all I didn't know what you were talking because you said today. I don't know. <laughs> you. No, um, yeah, but you've you've also, I mean, as you say, like you've gone into journalism and so much of what you do advocating for others. And this has shown up time and time again in the work you've done. Yes. Hmm. Um, Yeah. So I think it's, I mean, I can share a little bit. Yeah, please, please. Yeah. Okay. So I, uh, I was working at this organization, this digital media company called Mike, M-I-C. It later got bought in a fire sale and yada, yada, yada. We all got (laughs) laid off. RIP. Mm. Um, but <laughs> when I was working there, it was really exciting. And uh, I interviewed this woman who was um, in federal prison serving a life without parole sentence for a first time nonviolent drug offense. And uh, she was 61 years old at the time, had been in there for like 21 years and had no, and parole without parole means no opportunity to mm-hmm. ever get out. It's like locking someone up and throwing away the key. Yep. And so um, that's just not right. <laughs> and we did a, uh, I interviewed her via Skype from fe- federal prison in Aliceville, Alabama, where she was being held. And her name is Alice Mary Johnson. And um, her story went viral once we published it. And Kim Kardashian saw it and then um, tweeted it and shared it. And then a month later, decided to get involved in her case. And then uh, throughout the year of basically the early part, early half of the year of 2018, we, um, I followed Kim and Alice's story, kind of Alice, Kim's journey to try to get Alice out of prison through lobbying President Trump for Alice's clemency. Um, he eventually granted her clemency, um, on June 6th of 2018. And I was incredible. Yeah, it was amazing. And I got to be there. Like I was there when I got to tell her son and her grandson. Um, and then her daughter called me, I was like in Mississippi with them. And then we drove down three hours to the prison to pick up Alice. And it was just the most unbelievable experience. Wow. One of the craziest experiences of my life for sure. Yeah. Well, cause we're in an age where stories like that can go viral and good can be done right. on mass. Yeah. And on, on the back of that, they passed the first step act, which is the first piece of um, bipartisan criminal justice legislation in the last 25 years. And that has freed up a lot of other people 
And um, Kim has gone on to like, you know, she's trying to become a lawyer now. She's also uh, gotten clemency for, I believe, 17 other people at this point. Well, that's incredible. Um, that's a great way to use your celebrity, isn't it? It really is. It really is. I, I mean, I think it is. And um, yeah, so I think in a lot of ways, you know, now I work at the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. We work on a variety of issues and um, I tell stories about the work we do. And so I think in a lot of ways, I feel like that's a huge part of my life, like being involved in advocating for other kinds of causes. And I think as far as like the medical piece or my own, you know, stuff that hits home for me, um, you know, I think the podcast was the first envoy into starting to talk about those things. I think, you know, I'm really unabashed about putting like some kind of don't, uh, some kind of thing in my bios on, like in any kind of professional context or like Twitter, Instagram, that kind of thing that says that like I've had uh, an organ transplant because mm-hmm. I think, you know, the whole hashtag because of an organ donor, because I think it's important that people know and I've become, you know, pretty kind of just open and clear and putting it out there yeah. because I think it's really important that people know that people like me are, you know, only able to live this life because of the generosity of others and because of other families making a really hard decision in a really terrible time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that, um, I think that's like a small piece of, of advocacy or activism. And then I think I'm just kind of beginning to get my footing around, you know, uh, I did a piece about the organ transplant system for when I was at the New York times. um, And we did an opinion video talking about how messed up the uh, organ distribution transplant system is Mm. and how kind of the bureaucracies and the organizations that are in charge of um, procuring organs are actually really not doing a good job and there's no oversight. And, um, you know, it's like we have the opportunity to recover so many more organs than we are and there's an organ shortage and, so that that was a really great opportunity to do that piece, and um, Trump did change a rule within HHS policy, um, like about a month after the the piece came out. So it wasn't I mean, like this is like this is proof that, me, but, but it, this this is proof that one voice can make a difference and can be heard. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always felt that way. Um, mm. Even when I was, you know, when Oprah sat on this episode when, that I watched when I was eleven, highlighting the AIDS um, epidemic in South Africa. She said, $10 buys a uniform for a kid to go to school. Hmm. And I thought, well, I have $10 and all of my friends have $10. And if we put all of our $10 together, we can make a lot of, we can make a huge difference. Yeah. And it was so, so, so simple to me. And I think that we sometimes as adults really get clouded by, um, you know, a lot of our cynicism. Yeah. And I think you it's important to kind of go back to the beginning to like when you're a kid and you see something is very simple, like $10 can help someone. Okay. I'm going to give $10 and I'm going to convince all my friends to do it too. And, um, I think I, I like to try to remind myself that that's where everything started for me was believing that like one small action could make a huge difference and could turn into something much bigger than I imagined and um, I think that that was something that I really saw happen and um, be true in my life. And so I start, try to kind of remind my adult self about that. Yeah, I think that's really beautifully said. And I think, you know, you also have that experience of living despite the odds, right, that that can fuel that kind of fire as well, which more listeners should be inspired by. So I want to ask you one last massive question before we get on to the fun part. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm wondering about your take on the healthcare system. Um, Oh gosh. You sort of touched on this a little bit when discussing the way in which organ transplantation and and these lists are working, but in what ways are you seeing our healthcare system working for patients? And in (laughs) what ways can you actively see change that should actually improve the system? Well, I think no one should go bankrupt or be robbed by their need for medical care. Um, No one should not be, yeah, Yeah. no one should not be covered in some way. Um, I don't, 
begin to understand the intricacies of healthcare policy and insurance and whether or not it makes sense for the American system to be Medicare for all or not. I don't, I don't like, I think it's really easy to like, um, whittle down those things to slogans like Medicare for all and, and to be kind of rah, rah about it. And I think that that's, uh, like, easy and nice, it's not, but it's not that simple. Yeah. It makes us feel good. And, mm-hmm. um, but I don't, I don't necessarily know. And again, like, I just, I just don't know. Right. I just don't know if it's that simple and it's mm-hmm. that easy. And if people actually would really like that or how um, easy it would be to just dismantle the system we have now. Right. 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 And like, and what it would look like, you know, it, it's going to be paid for in some way. What does that look like? Mm. Um, you know, I don't know if it is great that the government tells you what you can or cannot have. I mean, currently insurance companies do that. We don't love it. (laughs) I don't know if the government would be better. Mm. Um, especially because I, I do fear a little bit of standardization of, of like, this is the rule based on, what these people, I've always kind of been the exception to the rule in my medical right. history. So I think that that kind of is a little bit concerning. That's very I well observed. Yeah. I think for people who are heavy users of the medical system, um, the idea that the wait lists would be really long and that kind of thing might be really like is a little bit weird and mm. eerie. And I don't know. And I think ultimately what what would potentially happen is that there'd be another private system that would be implemented on top of a public system that then would only be accessible to the extremely wealthy people anyway. So I don't... Does that mean that maybe it comes down to actually changing the way in which we view economics in the country rather than overhauling the healthcare system. Maybe we need to overhaul our financial system. And I, I just think that every, everyone should be covered. Like mm. everyone should be covered. That's the first thing we should absolutely do. And we should do that tomorrow. Yeah. You know, like fill the mid, like the Medicaid gap is mm. like the idea that y- you don't qualify for, I did a story on this. You don't mm. qualify for Medicaid in a state. We'll like, post the story too. So <laughs> it's, it's fine. It, uh, <laughs> in North Carolina, you don't qualify for Medicaid unless you're an individual person making under $19,000 a year. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And then you don't qualify for Obamacare subsidies if you, uh, I think, unless you make like thirty-five to $40,000 so there's a year. there's a huge gap in there. Yeah. huge gap in there. And and also it it even with Obamacare subsidies, it's unbelievably expensive for those people who mm. are at the bottom of the Obamacare subsidy range. Right. And so I think what it ends up doing is discouraging people from making money or improving their life because they're like, Well, I don't want to make more money because right now I get my health care for free. Once I make more money, I'm gonna get a lot, you know, I'm I'm gonna you spend all of my money on my health care. And, and so we can't have a system that does that. That doesn't make any sense for anyone. Um, and so I think, you know, starting with solving those problems first, I think would be the right first thing. I'm not saying mm. that I don't agree with Medicare for all. I just don't know. Right. I just don't know. And I just don't know if I think it's as simple as we sometimes make it out to be. Yes. I think that's, probably very true. Yeah. But it, but the affordability thing is like the, That's clearest, the first thing. Yeah. It's the clearest issue, right? Yes, absolutely. So here's also the fun the bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also covering more women's healthcare. Just listen, um, to women. listen to their problems. Don't think that they're making it up. Like believe women period. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So here's the fun bit. Okay, I great. like to end my interviews with a couple of top three lists. Sure. Great. And (laughs) the first top three list is tips. I'm wondering if you've got top three tips for people who are in this world of chronic invisible illness that we've existed within. Um, What would you recommend to patients, maybe even caregivers, um, maybe people who are on the organ donor waiting list? What, Mm -hmm. What would you say to these people? Um, well, my first, the first tip that came to mind is, um, for people who are, uh, looking at colleges, Mm. um, I think get in touch with the office of accessible education, the office of academic resources, whatever it calls the school calls it. There's always an office that is in charge of accommodations. And I think 
having a really honest conversation after you, you know, get accepted to a school um, or even before you apply with those people. It's not going to impact your standing. It's not going to impact your application. It's important to know what's available to you and what's not available to you. And each school can really make up their own rules because it's not like K through 12 education, especially if you're K through 12 education in public school, there are laws that really protect you. Um, IEPs and 504s and those kinds of things. But once you but get a lot in, of people don't know about those, so it's good you're mentioning them. Yes, yes. Those are available to you if you're in K through 12 education in public school. Mm. Uh, those are legal things that you can set up with your school system. But in in college, it's just a whole wild west and every college can treat it differently. And obviously through the ADA, they have to provide reasonable accommodation, but however they perceive that is totally different. I had a university that I really wanted to attend say that, um, you know, my K through 12 education was a right and this is a privilege. And, and, um, you know, this is when I asked about things like flexibility around attendance, around, uh, the date that I would take my, uh, final exam. Like what if I got sick? Um, or what if I couldn't finish all of my coursework by the end of the semester? What I, could I get an incomplete? Um, and they were not having it, it sounds like. No, no. And this is like, you know, one of the best institutions in the country. And it's a total shame that they... That's pretty terrible, yeah. You know, they could accommodate something that was really clear, like uh, if you are dealing with uh, hearing issues or um, if you're blind, you know, things that seem um, static and... Unpredictable in that way. Um, they could not accommodate uncertainty. And wow. the thing is, I think you have to be really, really honest with yourself and say, is this a good situation for me? Um, if this is yeah. the situation, they're not going to change it just for you. So is mm-hmm. this a situation that I can thrive in? Right. And being honest with yourself and saying, actually, no, I'm going to go to this other school because they're way better at this than mm-hmm. you are. Absolutely. So that's my that's my tip. Yeah. So, but you ended up in a place that worked for you, obviously. I did. Yeah, I really did. And I'm grateful that I had all of those conversations though. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So that's tip number one. Uh-huh. <laughs> tip number one. You got two more. <laughs> tip number two. Um, I think don't believe that doctors are always right. Like you yeah. can question them and, yes. um, you know, they're not God's I think, you know, certain generations ago, doctors were gods. They're not gods. They don't know anything. I mean, they know a lot. Obviously, they go to school, (laughs) whatever, they train. They know some stuff, but but they they don't necessarily know everyone's stuff. Right, but medicine is an art. It's not a science. Mm. It really is an art form, and they're guessing a lot. That's beautifully said, yes. A lot of guesstimations, Mm. and, um, you know... It's all still experimentation. Yeah, it is. It really is, and I think... In that way, you have to be, you have to question. You know yourself better than anyone else does. Trust yourself. Question them. Um, yes, I love that. And then my last thing, man, um, I guess like don't cut yourself out. I don't know. I think. Um, like give yourself well, credit that you can yeah, do things. You can do yeah, hard things. You can do hard things, but you can also do normal things. Like mm. I think oftentimes we can, and this goes for all different kinds of people, not just people with chronic illnesses, but we can kind of just assume that we're not going to be good or we're not going to be the best. So we take ourselves out of the equation um, and isolate ourselves or, you know, don't engage in something because we're afraid because, you know, we might quote unquote fail, all of those things. And I think to me, life is just so much better if you let yourself participate Mm. because like truly only your pride is at stake and you can control your pride. You know, when I was absolutely dead last in my cross country races, I just was like, oh my gosh, well, someone had to be last. And also now everyone's done so they can clap for me when I come in. (laughs) That's great. I have the biggest cheering squad. Yes, you do. And I think that um, it would would have been so much more sad for me to stay home and not be on cross country with all of my friends and to isolate myself from that experience because I knew I wasn't going to be good. And, Mm -hmm. or, you know, because it was going to clearly make me feel like, oh, well, 
my illness is making me less than in this situation, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's, that's the truth. But like, I, I think sometimes you surprise yourself and you're better than you think you are. And then also like, can't you just do something for the enjoyment of it? Like yes. no one really cares if you're last, only you care. Which is also that life is here to be lived. Right. Yes. Yeah. Don't count yourself out. Put yourself in the game. Like, don't let your e- don't let your pride get in the way of just like enjoying your life and being yes. a part of something. I think that's really beautiful. So here's the really fun top three list. Okay. <laughs> top three things that give you unbridled joy. Oh, this is awesome. sort of related to what you're just talking okay, about. That's great. So you may have had to make these lifestyle changes, you know, like you don't drink and you're, mm-hmm. you're aware of social distancing when you need to be, et cetera. Sure. But are there top three joyful things in your life? They may be guilty pleasures. They could be sure. indulgences, comfort activities, three things on that list that you would never compromise on because they just feed you so much joy. Well, I think that the list changes a lot and I've had various lists, I'm sure, but my current list right now, <laughs> um, I love Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> Crunchy or puffed? Oh, I like, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic about it. I like them <gasps> both, but. Oh my um, God, you're a monster. <laughs> I know. I like them both. Uh, I really like these like fancy ones from Whole Foods. Oh, they have, oh, I didn't even know they had fancy. Oh, yeah, Are they like fancy. Whole Foods brand? They're like some kind of like Barbara's something or other. Oh my God. They're the, not the puffy ones. They're the like crispier ones. It's all about that crispy crunch. I know. Um, they're very, very good. Yes. And um, I'm currently like also Cheetos, like the regular, just like gen- mm-hmm. generic Cheeto brand. Yeah. I love them too. And I like crunchy and puffed. Whenever and, I go to a gas station, I'm like, is it Cheetos time? Oh, see, <laughs> I understand that because whenever I go to an airport, that's when it's Cheetos time. Yeah. It's which Cheetos doesn't bode well. Time. It doesn't bode well for the, like the fingers. Like, <laughs> Honestly, not super sanitary, and I would not nope. recommend it in a corona crisis. No, not right now. Maybe um, in a few months. But you can eat Cheetos in the privacy of your own home. Yes, you can. Um, so Cheetos would be one of the – that's the first thing that came to mind. I love that. Um, uh, f- cheesy, like, free-form television. So, I thought uh, you were going for, like, another cheese. Oh, what? I do and love- I was like, okay, so we're going to be talking about cheese now. <laughs> I do love cheese. Cheesy TV, however. Yeah, though, yeah well, yeah. cheese – Cheesy, yeah, I like cheese in all varieties. Um, <laughs> cheese, cheesy freeform television. So, like mm-hmm. right now, I'm loving the bold type. Oh my god, I love that show too. I love the bold type. Oh my <laughs> so god, good. I asked my um, I just when I started this new job at the ACLU, I think I don't even know how it came up, but my coworker who sits right next to me, we chat about a lot of things. But one of the things I said is, "Do you watch the bold type?" And she goes, <laughs> "Do." Am I, it, I'm, I'm sorry. And I am a millennial in the media <laughs> world in New York city. Of course I watch the bold type. That's very good to hear because I want that show to have many seasons. It is the I show we need right now. It's so good. It's, it's so, so good. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Um, so that, I like that show. I also like good trouble, which is a, spin-off. I also love, those are my two favorites. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> yep. And I never watched the fosters, but I love good. Yes. Trouble. Same. Currently, we're a very marketable demographic. Yes. That's what I have to say. But like, there's a decade between you and I, and we both like it. So. I mean, that just means it's good television. It's good television. But I'm yeah. also an elder millennial, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, you're part of it, though. Yep, I'm, I am. I'm, a young, I'm a younger millennial. You're one of the baby millennials, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I think I'm on the edge. I'm mm. edge-ish. I'm, yes. You know, I'm, four, I'm four, safely four years in the millennial category. Yes, just, yeah. just. All right, um, so cheesy TV okay. and cheesy. Cheetos. Yeah. Okay, let's see if I can keep to the theme. Um, <laughs> cheese. <laughs> yeah, well, this is great. Um, what else? Uh, I really like the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen videos on YouTube. Oh, I love that. No one has Flash. recommended those. And Flash that is like, like perfect oh, watching in quarantine. Oh, it's so good. And also like, I mean, there's so many. There, it's so good. You, the, like the, yeah. the whole cast, you get to know them. Um also, I really like, she's not a Bon Appetit person, but she's kind of her own thing. She's a contributor, though. Mm. Bon Appetit and New York Times Cooking. Her name is Allison Roman. 
I'm kind of obsessed with her. Amazing. Make, all, make the cookies, make the stew, make the dip, make all of the things. Oh, that sounds amazing. Now we I had want a, a big meal. Yeah, we had an Allison Roman party where everyone <laughs> made an Allison Roman dish. She has two cookbooks and then a bunch of like viral recipes. And it was a great time. That sounds awesome. Was that when you were at the Times? This is, well, no, this was like a couple of weeks. It was like, it was a month ago. It was pre-corona, post the times. Amazing. Oh, that's, yeah, your zest really. for life is very real to me. Like it really comes across. <laughs> You're reminding me of like all my favorite snacks right now that I'm not going to go to the grocery store to buy. I know, I'm like, I'm hungry. <laughs> I know, but I should have locked myself in with some Cheetos. I messed this up. <laughs> See, I have dinner after this. You maybe have like an hour. I don't know. I'm, I'm ready. ready. I'm ready to eat. I, okay. I. I have a weird eating schedule because I get up late. So I'm like, I'm ready, I'm ready for dinner. <laughs> love that for you. I'm going to go. Yeah, I love that for me. I'm going to go cook myself a pork loin. It's going to be beautiful. Great. Amazing. <laughs> well, Kendall, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you yeah. today. Can you Enjoy. tell our listeners where they can find you like on social media? Sure. Yeah, you can find me on all the social things, mm-hmm. um, mostly Twitter and Instagram. Um, yep. On Twitter, I'm at K. And then my last name, which is really hard, C-I-E-S-E-M-I-E-R. There we go. I'm sure you'll find it. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm my full name, Kendall Seesmeyer. Um, so, yeah. That's amazing. Forcing well, Kendall, people to learn how to spell my name. Yeah, well, at the very least, right? Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we sign off? No, thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. It was such a, such a great conversation. I'm so glad we got to meet. And we were connected by the lovely Sneha Dave. Yeah, exactly. Another She's wonderful great. advocate in this community. So have got Kendall, a lot of good guests. I know. Uh, look, I'm very fortunate. And I'm very and hey, fortunate. Stay that... tuned for more, right? Exactly. Stay tuned for more, kids. Great. <laughs> um, yeah. Especially for your questions quarantine pleasure. I know. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, do I want those Cheetos. Oh man. I know, oh, right? It's good. Girl. <laughs> Sorry. Well, uh, yeah. How dare you? <laughs> well, Kendall, thank you so much. It's been so great chatting with you and I hope we get to chat again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.